Welcome to our Brave Feminine Leadership interview series. Today, I am so thrilled to welcome Div Pillay to the conversation. Lovely to have you join me, Div. Fantastic to be here. I'm so glad to join you, Melissa, and I've um, kind of watched you in awe having these conversations with amazing people, so I'm glad to be part of it. Thrilled to have you here. Now, this series, um, you know, we're still very much focused on, um, you know, my sort of personal uh, mission around elevating more females into CEO roles. Mm -hmm. But the lens on this one is around no more secrets, extraordinary leaders sharing their journey from good to great leadership. So before we jump into that conversation, I'm going to touch on a little bit of your bio so people know who I'm talking to, and then I'll hand to you and we'll get on with the conversation. (laughs) So Div is an experienced and respected diversity and inclusion practitioner. So for over 25 years has worked as a leader, researcher and an advocate in that space. Her specialty focus is on race and cultural inclusion and is backed by her personal experience of living under racially segregated apartheid laws before migrating to Australia. Div's also got a behavioural psychology background and leads mind tribes and social enterprise culturally diverse women. Um, she's also chair of the DNI committee at the American Chamber of Commerce for Australia and a uh, board director at Vic, Howe, Vic Health. I was having trouble getting that out then, Div. Um, <laughs> Div's one of the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence in 2018. And in 2021, was named one of only two Australians in a global list of 25 influential leaders by AACSB, uh, which is one of the world's largest um, business education alliances. So congratulations. Um, Looking forward to getting into our conversation. And I've had the privilege of having a little sneak peek into some (laughs) of your your background and your story, Div. So I know we're in for, you know, a really interesting chat today. So Div, for people who haven't had the pleasure of coming across you before, can I get you to just jump in with, you know, who are you as a human being? And let's get into your, your story. Now, that is a very big question. So I'm going to have to chunk it down for you. I feel like um, it's probably a a segue into kind of before Australia and then in Australia. Um, And, you know, before uh, my 19 years in Australia, I grew up, uh, was raised, educated and began my early career in apartheid South Africa. So we came um, in 2002, which was we spent a few years after the first democratic election, which was in 1994, living in South Africa. So I watched that transition happen both at a government and society and business uh, space, that transformation. And then it became pretty intolerable to live in South Africa from a safety perspective. And we exited in, in migration. So um, life uh, before Australia was very, very different from what it is now um the fundamental difference being safety and freedom um we lived in segregated uh communities because of the group areas act which was a way to segregate uh, and homogenize races uh and of course um black south africans indian south africans and colored south africans lived in the poorest um areas uh of course black south africans being the most marginalized without access to education um, healthcare, um, any sort of formal land. There was a lot of informal settlements. Um, and the Indian areas were on the outskirts of uh, the more affluent areas, so quite far. Um, and we lived like that in, in that segregation for my entire life until 1994. So I was a, a beginning my uh, university education and um, 
thankfully came into a time of education where um, there was a law called the University Segregation Act. Uh, so we were also segregated in, in education. So what we could access, what we could study, and therefore what careers we had was predicated of race. Uh, so, you know, university life was also um, very much governed by the rule of law at the time. And I was um, lucky enough to go to university just as the University Segregation Act was abolished, abolished in years prior. Um, so we did get access to what would be traditionally a white university. Um, however, there was some um, divisions created in the courses that we could choose. So there's often a, a running joke about what Indians do as careers in South Africa. So they'll, you know, comedy festivals will say there they are accountants or teachers or finance or business people or community workers and right. that's that's who they are um and that that joking around while you know we might all laugh it's it does hit home because often when you think about why that is so it is because we were channeled through certain um you know functions and certain disciplines in university and therefore could only attain careers in in those disciplines and that would be highly competitive as well um, because it would be only a certain number of black empowerment targets met and would slowly funnel through there and and really even though the country changed overnight people did not um, so even now um, so many years later they are there's still the financial inequity that got created by those um, educational, uh, you know, attainment, then into careers, then into jobs that actually kept people pretty much uh, middle class to lower class to in the poverty line. Um, and so we grew up uh, low to middle class, uh, you know, both parents, my parents were teachers, but we actually saw them lead even within barriers, um, within, you know, roadblocks to what they could achieve. They, they still created a life that was, for us, uh, quite a happy one, uh, one that valued education, one that valued service to community, um, mm -hmm. that actually uh, taught us to dream beyond our limitations, uh, our obvious limitations of where we lived, uh, where we worked, where we studied, where we supported others. Um, and there was a strong push, uh, especially from my father, to actually go beyond what he had achieved. Um, and he was quite um, uh, adventurous. And he, as soon as there was the opportunity to go get an education overseas, he, he won a scholarship to do his master's in education in London um, and off he went um, yeah. while my mother stayed behind um, and visited him occasionally, but he did his master's in education and he led within his sphere of influence. And that's what I learned uh, very, very early on. Um, so he was a rector of an Indian training college because when he uh, was in his prime of his career, it was still pretty segregated. Um, so teachers went to an Indian technical training college um, and he was a rector of one of those, but he brought back uh, a very equitable lens on education. And he did a lot of service work in educating uh, Black South Africans in, 
English literature, uh, literacy and, and being able to um, attain educational qualifications that were not recognized but uh, formally, but help them in a recognition once uh, the government of the day had changed. Um, so there were so many people um, after he died who came and told us stories of his volunteer hours. And we always had a class going in our house. There was always someone in our garage or backyard or... That's um, lovely. Yeah, someone learning English. And my father was an English literature um, you know, teacher and history teacher. Yeah, there was always some sort of family that we were helping or group of students that we were helping. So it became part and parcel of how I learned about leadership um, of yourself, but also leadership within boundaries and limitations, but um, still that self-leadership of, of having an aspiration and going after it and trying to make good and navigating barriers anyway, uh, despite of, and I think that navigation or understanding of what you can do beyond your limitations is something that has stuck with me forever um, and actually probably gave me the courage to come to Australia anyway, um, even when many, many people told us we shouldn't. Um, I was six months pregnant with my son um, and, you know, we had a whole army of a family going, what are you doing? You're crazy. You're going to a place that you never, I had never been. Um, I put in my papers as a, a skilled migrant years before and uh, came on one crazy trip um, in 2001 I think to stamp a passport and go back and it was something Australia was a dream that we put aside for a long-term dream um, when the violence escalated we said okay time to push that button and exit yeah, yeah we're out um, your parents um, as well no, no. Um, so we came, um, only we, we got skilled migration. We didn't apply as a family. We applied as a little family unit. So um, unborn child um, and uh, my husband and myself uh, came and it wasn't as easy uh, to exit uh, a whole family. Um, it was easier to come as individuals with the plan to support people to come after us. Um, so my husband actually, the destination of Australia was chosen based on uh, my husband's family. So he's got four sisters and three of them were already in Australia uh, years before making their way one at a time, each one helping the other. So we were the last to come off of his side of the family. Yeah. Um, yeah so we came because of that connection um, and support from family. But quickly I learned that um, how distant it the states can become because one um, sister was in Perth and one was in um, in Brisbane and then one and then one was in Melbourne um, and so we came to Melbourne uh, and I fell in love with Melbourne immediately. Mm -hmm. um, I was quite happy not to be in uh, any of the other states. So you know it it is a tumultuous journey. Um, growing up years was you know kind of really pushing forward. It it had this sentiment of pushing for progress but slow and and steady and and, and getting knockbacks often <laughs> like every every aspiration would have a knockback uh, through everything um so i kind of am accustomed to having that like i'm not actually afraid of getting a knockback or a pushback or and knowing that the system is going to often spit me out <laughs> because I'm so used to that. Uh, so it doesn't phase me. And, and people um, often think that um, I'm, 
you know, very, very resilient. And maybe that's a descriptor potentially, uh, but I think it's pretty inherent right now, um, given, you know, 26 years of, of living under apartheid rule and then um, 19 years here in Australia with a fair few knocks uh, along the way, especially in the workplace and in careers. So maybe we should get into some of those. And I might just ask you to move into your, I, I want to go back and touch on a couple of things from your childhood as well, but let's continue with the sort of, you know, into Australia component to sort of where you landed up today, and then we can work our way through some of them. Sure. So, um, you know, I I learned quickly about um, some of the workplace barriers uh, in, in enter entering work uh, at that very early stage of my career. So I had done almost six years of experience in Australia, uh, in uh, South Africa, and then coming to Australia, I, I was pregnant, of course. So the first uh, sort of life decision and, and way of working through getting into Australia was to have this baby um, and bringing him into the world safely. Um, I must say, the, the, with everything, there's ups and downs. It, it was a beautiful journey. Uh, being supported by a healthcare system that we had never known in yes. South Africa. Um, the, the public health here compared to a developing country is light years away. Um, there's so much of support and so much of care that's um, free and accessible. So that was a big, wonderful surprise in terms of all the maternal health uh, nurses, mm -hmm. et cetera, and the system itself being pretty open and free. Um, but uh, as soon as I hit that entry into first uh, roles or even job searching was the, the moment that I realized this is not the lucky country that I thought I had landed in or this um, you know, trajectory wouldn't be as smooth as I expected it to be. Um, and all of the things that you see about Australia from a developing country context is, is the, the opportunity. Um, you see the um, rhetoric of the valuing of, of different languages, of different international backgrounds, and you um, raise your expectations because you think you will be easily welcomed uh, and you'd have a smoother time. And even coming on a skilled migration visa you think your expectation is up because you think you're going to be valued for your skills. Um, yes. And yet um, my first experiences was uh, through the job search and recruitment agencies was a pigeonholing of my skill sets. So almost, um, you know, quantifying it as not enough um, or the valuing of attaining local experience first before I could uh, move anywhere else. Um, you know, first was the educational qualification assessment, then was the, um, you know, proving of, of English language, which for me, English is my first language. Um, we in South Africa were, were forced to speak English and Afrikaans, which is uh, the language of the Dutch and, mm. and our oppressor at the time. We could not get a year 12 um, leaving certificate without uh, writing exams in English and Afrikaans. So doing Afrikaans as a second language uh, all throughout our, our education and giving up our our, our own language so so you I'm, never learnt your um I guess your parents your parents first language no no um so we had to it was it was seemingly a choice so we could 
speak it at home uh, or, or learn it at home. Um, but, you know, all through my parents' journey and their parents' journey of um, speaking it in the community or speaking it in a white suburb or speaking it in the city centers, uh, they had experienced, you know, violence because of it. Um, you know, if we spoke back in our mother tongue, you, you, you would, white police wouldn't understand you and would, um, you know, just uh, assume that you were saying something disparaging. And, you know, we saw um, Indians before us uh, jailed or beaten. So there was such a fear around our language. Uh, and my father really focusing on his skill build as an English literature professor, um, he would absolutely uh, say to us, don't speak it outside. And even at home, even with, when we would have a grandma at home trying to, to get us to speak, um, he would be very strict about um, our English language capability and proficiency. And um, there was always um, a joke around our dinner table of my father saying, uh, give me a better word for that. Give me another adjective for that. Give me, give me another um, phrase. Uh, mm -hmm. And there would be just be this consistent upping of our language capability. So, you know, um, we gave that up. And so it was such a, um, a juxtaposition to come into the Australian job, job market and ask um, and prove that language capability um, or, yeah. or have a, a disbelief of it. I'm like, really? Do you think that? <laughs> I can't speak English that well, well or the um, offhanded compliment of how well we did speak uh, English which yes. you know is, is a nice thing to say sometimes a very casual thing to say but it does cut home when you think about the the, the leaps and bounds that we've come in you know navigating anyway despite inequity and legal legal discrimination towards now so that first um experience through the job search uh, phase and then the job attainment was just a constant proving of all skill sets including language ability um, and then there was that you know business culture um, fit there was always like a fitting in yes. um, phase and I, I charted that all through the zero to five years of of building a rebuilding a career into that five to 10 year mark, still proving, still fitting in, yeah. still adjusting, which um, in some ways does strip you of your identity. You, you get to that 10 year mark and then, you know, with my six years prior in South Africa, you know, 15, 16 years and you go, am I still trying desperately to fit in here and be like everyone else or am I giving up something have I lost something um you know and it it can get quite um you know really confusing in your mindset about your style your approach your communication the way you relationship build the way you present something because you get feedback about the way you do it not being right or not being enough yeah, not being enough, you know, change yeah. it this way, change it that way. You know, the, the first few years um, when I talked about the complexity of the talent market and, and actually I was a recruiter just before I came um, into Australia. Uh, I worked for one of the largest recruitment houses um, and, and was quite senior managing a large project. And, you know, when you think about the complexity of the talent market in South Africa coming out of apartheid, um, we worked with quotas and targets long before Australia even mentioned those words. Um, we talked about uh, 
a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens long before um, Australia even started thinking about racial and cultural inclusion um, or of its multicultural people. Uh, we went from a policy lens, a system lens, because we had to rebuild everything because the government of the day changed. Mm. Um, and the way we set affirmative action targets was world leading. Um, and yet, when I came into the talent market and worked in, in people in culture and in HR departments, it, whenever I mentioned uh, the complexity of, of that talent market in, in South Africa, I, I got shut down quickly going, oh, well, we're very different markets and we can't really learn about that because, you know, Australia is, you know, quite different and we focus on gender equality making. You know, yeah, yeah, you know, like we're very, very different. You can't compare South Africa to Australia. You know, it was a, a discounted experience. Um, and yet uh, what I do now as an entrepreneur is absolutely valuing that um, that experience through South African markets and being able to, to make change when, when systems change uh, to really value um, lived experience and, and parts of people's life in the workplace that, you know, really, Australia is only beginning. It's such an immature market from that perspective, and it's only beginning to turn its head around that that uh, conversation in the workplace. So, yeah, it's 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 hard because I've just played such a waiting game uh, to be recognised, which is not just my story, but so many migrants' okay. stories. Yeah, yeah. If um you 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 had an HR, you'd kind of move through HR roles. What was the catalyst to um, really kick off Mind Tribes? I suppose it was um, a revaluing of my skill sets and also a repositioning of a career life journey that I really went through when um, I think the first time that I really, really took proper parental leave was for my third child uh, our last born uh, she's 11 now uh, but when I was on uh, leave for her I had the headspace to think mm. uh, because with each child I had to return pretty fast um, from a financial inequity perspective you know you you um, come from a developing country I think when we entered it was seven round to the dollar um, so we took every bit of savings we had yes. to be able to start again and then it took us 10 to 15 years to rebuild that and and keep going um, and having breaks in careers was not great for us um, and we didn't have um, the flexibility within both of our careers my husband's career and my career to be able to do that um, flexibility is only in parental leave is only coming to, you know, changing now so we're quite one of the OECD countries, last OECD countries to change in that perspective. So uh, our two first, first two children were born in times where we, we just didn't have that flexibility in the workplace. Um, so it was my third that I had headspace to think. And I really took stock of whether I could continue down the HR director pathway and, and keep going. Um, and what would that look like from a, a career trajectory, but also uh, a social impact perspective? So I, I came with this, uh, as I mentioned before, through my my parents' journey of, of creating impact um, and really changing lives in the process. Um, and I really took stock of saying, well, what, I, what was I doing as a people and culture lead, um, really? And through that 
time of of our lives when we were raising young children you know as you the audience may appreciate it's very difficult to actually find the time to give back anything absolutely <laughs> uh, like I've got no time I've got, I'm actually just looking after the two human beings that I've got at the moment um so that was a bit challenging time in our lives but um as I I had this this baby and looked at her thinking what am I teaching her and what have I taught the older two um in terms of the life skills that my parents gave me and my husband's parents were the same so a lot of Indian parents who who came up into that middle class space um really used that to leverage and give back to communities that didn't have it um and I couldn't see that we were living that life again in Australia we, we were just not doing that we, we donated we volunteered occasionally but it wasn't something that was fundamental in our everyday lives um like your so dad we, running those classes in the house yes yeah. every day giving back he could put on his head on his pillow and go I have made a difference in someone's journey and it has changed the course of their lives. And I thought, we are not doing that. And we're not teaching our kids to do that either. Um, and I thought, look, if I stayed in the private sector and just did another job or more senior roles for another 10 to 15 years, I would get to the stage, you know, where I would wonder again if I was doing the right thing or not or why, why was I waiting to get to my 50s and then think oh now I can do social impact um, so it was a whole life re-evaluation at that point um, and I actually did a fantastic unit of study that was brought by a French professor into Monash uh, I was doing my MBA at the time with this little one <laughs> last last unit um yeah it was a crazy time and uh and there was an elective unit to to do a it was called personal um a personal enterprise unit it was really uh, a pilot unit offered to the MBA students who were really doing an MBA for different reasons but um often to cause a change in career trajectories um and this was a personal development, personal advancement program. And I, I took it as a pilot group of um, students. There were about 30 of us from the MBA class who did it. Um, but it really taught us to almost do like a, a SWOT analysis over life and career um, mm. and to emerge into a career life plan. And I'm actually in, um, it's, it's the, the professor is Dr. Bob Aubrey. And he wrote a book um, called Aspirations, and I'm a key case study in that book. Um, and you can see me very, very heavily pregnant um, in there. Uh, most people don't recognize me anymore in, there, in that picture. But it forced me to put a plan in place that I had never done. The whole thing, the whole you know, journey through South Africa and the whole journey into Australia was just getting one foot in front of the other. Uh, yes, dreaming big, trying to get the right roles trying to um, make a life again but it wasn't really planning anything really concretely it, it was just getting to those milestone moments so it was the first time I had the headspace and the opportunity to do it properly um, and I was the candidate who from a social cultural lens uh, in my group I was the only Asian female in in that group and I said look I can't really decide without my partner, without my husband, um, in terms of what he's doing. And I remember the males in the group looking at me going, 
you know, that seems a bit backward, like <laughs> I need to ask your husband's permission. And I think one of the, the males in the group made a little quip to that effect. And I said, oh, no, it's, it's not that. It's just that we've charted our lives together. We've made this big, bold decision to leave our home country and everyone and everything that we knew behind. And we are partners. We are team players. We have to, you know, I took a turn while my husband went into consulting uh, and he went into mergers, acquisitions and crazy hours. And I held the reins for our family. And then I took a risk to get into Optus and he pulled back his career. Uh, I took, he finished his MBA. I pulled into MBA world and we kind of always have flexed and ebbed between each other to be able to give each other a leverage and leg up um, while we held something for each other. And so for me, it was like a partnership. So I was like, oh oh no, I'm not backward. Like I don't need to ask his permission. It's not permission, but it's a a thing that we need to do together. So I came up with, we had a final assignment and I did a, my project on a, on a dual career plan. And um, it, that in career management uh, academics was just emerging uh, at that point. And Dr. Bob already loved that because I said, I, I, I have to plan this together. And, and I did three options uh, of scenarios of how it would play out. And what I'm doing today is exactly one of those scenarios. So I like to look back on this book because I go, oh, look, we did it then back in, I don't know, 2005 or something crazy. That's fantastic. Um, Can I um, pause for a sec on that? I mean, I love, there's so much I love about that. I love the intentional career thought and planning. Um, I love the partnership space and um you know, I feel privileged. My husband and I did the same thing. So, you know, we've, we've done that, sit back, lean forward, all those different things throughout our careers. Can I just ask, do you feel like the colleagues doing the MBA program with you, did they understand when you, you know, when you explained that partnership, did that resonate, do you think, with them? I think I hit a bit of um, nerve with some of them because I think, think what was the good that came out of that is is that I influenced them to go back to their partners and have the same conversation (laughs) so I think um yeah it was interesting to see that you know half that group was just making a plan that was very individual and I'm not sure whether you know to some degree I think some of them were doing it like a task yes. uh, whereas I was taking it meaningfully I was like well this you is my opportunity it. I was let me, let me do it proper proper and let me have the tough conversations back at home and think about how we do this and think forward and um, you know we have had a five-year plan we had a 10-year plan and we had different options underneath and uh, I remember having an old whiteboard at home that we had squiggles all over and we, we we spoke for weekends upon weekends about the different ways we could execute this. And the things that came out of um, that discussion with my husband then was that we we chose to have a life that was led by social impact uh, and making a difference. And that was the anchor point. So we had to make dollars out of that choice. Um, And we actually planned for me to start as an entrepreneur. Um, My husband went back into consulting, did the mergers acquisitions again, um, did the crazy hours, but uh, he was holding us down financially while I stepped into entrepreneurship. Um, And 
I really, in those first early years, had so many knocks. Um, at the same time, there were a number of restructures of people in culture um, teams, and a lot of people in culture teams was, you know, team members were restructured out, and I put my hand up for a redundancy. So instead of going back and taking up my role, um, I did put up my hand up for a redundancy to be able to get some sort of um, financial payout to get me to start. Um, yes. So I did that, although, you know, I had hadn't that many years of service to, to make that a big payout. I think it was probably about $30,000 or something ridiculous. It wasn't that crazy, but it gave, gave us a couple of months of leeway for me to stand up um, again. And with my husband taking another role again, it gave us some, some breathing space. Um, but I quickly learned how hard that first year was. It, it, I was competing in a market of uh, ex very senior heads of diversity and, and uh, senior HR directors who had been restructured out, who also became sole consultants. Um, and they left with clients in their hands. Um, yes. I left with nothing, no network. And because of the years of rebuilding a career, doing a master's again, raising young children, I didn't step out of my bubble to network and form relationships um, at all. Um, and that was my, what I didn't see as, as a deficit, but I saw it clearly in that first year, that first 18 months of being on my own, about how much of the effort needed to go into marketing and sales and meeting people and getting out there. And, and once I did that, I got faced by the inequity of it all. Um, one of my first big deals that I actually won based on merit and a, and a solid proposal um, was the rejection of me as a senior facilitator coming in to run this leadership program. Um, I was asked to see if I could find someone who better fit with the audience. Um, oh, wow. So they were mainly male um, leaders, so 60 male leaders, and yes. two, of, two of them were females. Um, but I was asked to say, look, love the program, love the design, love the activities that leaders would go on in the six-month program, but, you know, could you find someone who would better fit, you know, do you have anyone in your team? And then there was no team, there was just me. So I'm like, no, Sounds like just they me. really needed, they really needed the program though, Deep, from that. Exactly, exactly. But um, I, I didn't, I was a coward in that moment. I didn't actually uh, stand up and call out the inequity of what the request was about. Um I um I just said it was too expensive to actually get someone um in and still be able to charge myself out for design. Um, yes. Yeah, and I stepped back from it. Um, and actually they got a a sports psychologist who knew the CEO and who was friends with the CEO. They went to the same school. Um, and he he won won the deal. I I later found out, uh, and he was of course a better fit. <laughs> with yeah. the audience as yeah. they wanted me to fit. Um, and yet I think I would have um, really disrupted thinking. I really would have changed the way those leaders actually um, activated diversity and inclusion really. Um, and what I know from what happened from that program was that not, nothing really did change as a result of that impact outcome of that program. And, um, uh, but it was, it was a, a moment in time that actually fueled me to step even further into my storytelling 
um, really uh, allowed me the courage to be able to um, advise and recommend even at proposal stage, but also to choose the clients that I wanted to work with as well, to have the courage to say, you're actually not ready uh, to make that change. And once you're ready from an organization, culture and leadership perspective, then it's time to work with me. But, you know, if you just want someone to come in and, and make you feel good in the moment, uh, I'm probably not the person for you. So it gave me my voice back in a way. That rejection was really good for me. I'm glad it happened because I saw the inequity for what it was. I knew that it was real, that I, before then I was fooling myself to think I'm just as good as anyone else. Um, yes. I've got the education, I've got the experience, I can compete. And then I realized, ah, the system is not letting me in. Um, they're letting others in, but not me. But I've got to face up to that. I can't just go with rose-tinted glasses and walk around and think that I can win deals. I've got to be clever about how I position myself, how I market myself, what's unique about me. And there came my voice uh, and my storytelling. And I think it was great <laughs> to have that first rejection. Yeah, I love the, I mean, the leadership that comes from you now also saying you're not ready for us to have the conversation. Um, can I ask with your um, org psych background, do you think leaders are born or made, Div? Ooh, I think they are made because we have choices to make. And mm. those choices, and I think everybody has the propensity to lead, um, but you have to step into it um, and you have to be able to ask yourself um, what are your choices? What are your options? Uh, and I think everyone with that, the cognitive side of psychology, I feel you, if you can make decisions, then you can discover what those pathways are and you can make a choice and you, and you can lead from anywhere. Um, what would you call out as, um, you know, formative experiences throughout your sort of life that, that shifted your own leadership capabilities? I think a lot of it has been um, very much situations where I've had the choice to choose one path over another or actually even rediscover a third path or a fourth path that I didn't know. Um, and I think a lot of those formative um, you know, times in my life, I, I can recall, of course, in, in, in South Africa, I've had many, many um, ways to kind of be creative around option generation, you know, discovering new ways, because often there would be no options available. You got to creatively come up with something. <laughs> if you don't, you'll just be standing still. And I think for me, it's about that self-leadership. Um, those moments in South Africa where there's no options or limited options and you create, uh, I think I was always entrepreneurial when I think back. Um, and here in, South in, in Australia, I feel like there's um, a lot of choices and opportunities around, but I think you have to be able to be clear about what they are and you've got to be governed by your values to be able to choose correctly. Um, and that's the advice I give leaders as well. But if to your question about um, moments in time, when I think about South Africa, you know, I had um, a, a terrible incident of a hijacking in my 20s. I was taken by three uh, young black men who were in their mind trying to gain back a sense of equity or justice by um, 
taking what they didn't have um and i and there's their choice there um that they made but they they did for me choosing correctly by choosing to harm me in the process um but when i think about um coming out of that incident and being a survivor of that hijacking um i had choices too uh, and i if i've got a head and a heart i've got free will uh, even though the land the land was governed discriminatory you know unfairly it it's i still had choice i still could think and 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 make a decision um and a lot of people told me to stay quiet to stay silent to not do anything from family to you know even uh, my employer at the time was saying you don't have to step back in you can do many things you can be in a back office you don't have to be in front of an audience um and yet i chose differently i chose for my voice to be loud and to, to be clear and i i chose not to hate um because it was easy you know to demonize all black people um and you know coming from a very conservative indian family there was a lot of hate for what had happened for me to me by my mother by family and they you, yeah you shared with me when you and i first met and you shared aspects of this story one of the things that you shared with me was how common this was very common very very common um because it, Indian females and hijacking was we were an easy target um because often for the shame you know the cultural shame of of being taken um there was a lot of silencing there um so you know families would say let's not report it to the police or we wouldn't want that uh, to go against a marriage proposal or yes. or an opportunity for you to have this clean life um and this is you know tainting your life don't mention it uh, or, or or be quiet about it and there was a lot of that um as well in my family about what i should say what i shouldn't say um never to talk about it so we 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 often just we just moved through that time and we didn't talk about it um at all uh, and but but I still had that voice in my head saying you've got a choice um, and even though everyone's telling you to stay quiet to to choose hate um or fear um I chose differently um in fact I immersed myself in the black community um I became the director of youth services at a, one of the, the first or the youngest um Indian females to be a, a director of youth services. I mobilized the community to to do um youth development, uh skill development, um a lot of community engagements to teach young black um, and Indian leaders and colored leaders uh leadership. um so i immersed myself uh, much to my mother's horror i think mm. if she listens to this uh, interview she'd be like was that what you were doing <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so i did a lot of things that everybody said to me not to do um and i did it anyway uh, but because it was for me uh my agency yeah, i i had a choice and i could be quiet or fearful um and that would have led me down a very different path um but i was um strong and vocal and collaborative i i was highly consultative i i worked with the community asked the questions very co-design all of the things that i do now um i i really look back and go i i filled my life in south africa with service leadership 
and it has done me well uh, in, in think- terms of in like in some of those moments making some of those choices around using your voice and and you know not stepping back from this and being fearful what i mean how where did that come from div like that that spirit that where where did that come from i'm very much um even back then i was very much consequence you know assessing consequence um of everything. And I think that's a value that my father taught me early and, and my mom as well about if you do this, then what? And if you do that, then what? Um, so I kept, even during my car hijacking, I had many, many choices. Even I was held at knife point in my, in my own car. Um, and right through, I was taken for almost 10 hours and right through the 10 hours, I kept playing that game in my head if this, then what, if this, then what? And I had so many scenarios of options out of the situation. So in that situation, it's a power struggle, right? So I was disempowered, absolutely. But still, I was still using my agency to think, 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 think. Um, what could I do? What were the options? You know, if this, then what? And I think, I think innately like that. Um, and so this is when I influence now for more equity and inclusion, I often ask leaders the same thing. So you've got a moment now in time, decide, choose, choose a better path, act, have that agency, do it now. Um, don't wait for a time where you are more comfortable, when you are less fearful, when things seem like it's a better time to make a decision. Uh, these are human lives you have to choose now you have to make the right choice now and I think I have always caused myself to be in a pressure cooker environment to make a call now not to wait and Mm. so I feel like I'm fast in my decision making but I'm calculating risk all the time and I'm looking for consequence and impact and outcome all the time and I do that even on a daily basis like I, I've got a, a right to choose. Yes. I've got free will to choose. I can think. I can assess. So this means I'm fully able to make a go at it. Uh, and, I, and I think there's not enough of that in leadership, that kind of you, you can act from what wherever you, you stand. Want, um, you know, I mean, in Australia today, most of the power is still held traditionally um, with males. Um, what what do you want some of those questions or, or thoughts to, to be when you have those conversations? What are you asking people to consider? I'm asking them to consider the impact of nothing changing and what kind of future are you, are you building for yourself, even, even if you have to act out of selfishness? What kind of world are you designing or, or building for you and for others? Um, and even others closest to you or even others who depend on you what kind of life is this Um, and we've all got one life and I'm very cognizant of that because that moment in 1998 when I experienced that carjacking most people don't come out of that alive so I just that is on the forefront of everything that I do I go I've got one life it's going to end (laughs) I'm lucky it didn't end early in my 20s I'm grateful for what I've got 
So that means I've been given a second chance. What am I doing with it? Um, and I feel like you don't have to have those moments to value the life that you've got. And I feel that if every one of us takes that approach of valuing our time here and our agency, we'd actually have more leaders with the social conscience and with an impact outcome to make good for others and not just for themselves. So I think those men in the room that I often am pitching to on, on boards, I've got 15 minutes, I've got to get in there, I've got to influence them. I influence them from a humanistic perspective. Mm. Go, you've, you've got a choice. You can choose differently. How are you making that happen in the short run, not in the long run? Um, and don't make it tokenistic. Don't make it you know, so high level that when you look back in five years or 10 years, you can't see the impact of what you've done. You've got a legacy to leave. What is it? Um, so I try to make it urgent. I try to make it humanistic. Um, I try to make it not just out of selfish reasons, but for others. As soon as, as, soon as you're in service of others, it changes the game. Mm. Um, and I look for scalable change. I go, what can we do that can scale fast and that can leave a lasting impact? Um, and that should be your legacy. Um, What's so an example of that, Deep? So just simply um, looking at, at pay inequity, um, but pay inequity for everyone, not just for, for women. Um, yes. Because my area of influence and where I'm talking to leaders is, is in the business community, in the workplace. So I've really grounded myself to say, I can't make change everywhere, but I can make change in the workplace. What can I do? Um, Pay, pay and working and thriving at work is a social determinant. I know that from South Africa, when people have a job, they can put food on the table and they have a roof over their head and they can then go, ah, oh, I can educate myself. I can go further. What else? So a job and a thriving career is a social determinant. It determines where we live, how well we live, uh, what access we have to what kind of healthcare or other systems that we're accessing. Um, but if you, if you stop a person from fully equitably achieving their value in terms of dollars, you're stopping them from living a life that they have where they have choice. Mm. So for me, it's fundamental to impact pay inequity, but pay inequity for everybody. And this country has a problem of just addressing gender pay gaps. Um, we don't actually look intersectionally to people who are very, very disadvantaged and let down by systems in our communities. And then again, further let down by the workplace systems like pay. Um, and I look, for, um, I look for promotional opportunities. So where people are really thriving, because then we have a whole burgeoning middle uh, of, you know, of the workforce that's really so inequitably uh, battling in their careers that they are lagging behind those pay jumps. Yes. So they never get it. And they are, you know, you've got uh, women in that space, you've got migrants, you've got people living with a disability, people caring for a person with a disability, um, sitting in the middle of the pack in the workforce without promotional opportunities or, or ways to advance. And literally we plateau a whole group of people who then can't live differently. Um, and that is so inequitable. That's what we do in this country. We, we don't make that visible. Um, and, and, we 
we are asking our population then to work longer, to survive on less super, uh, to, to have less financial freedom in their latter years of their lives where they are dependent on the government. Uh, and we are designing that future because we are saying, oh, we, we don't see your pay inequity. We don't see your promotion gap. Uh, we don't see what we're doing to you, but we are. Um, so I feel like there's a the social impact lens to all of it. And when I talk to leaders, I go, that is a decision that you are avoiding or you're not willing to see, or you're just not making right now because there are some other sort of revenue generating or you know, innovation piece that you're doing at the moment that sounds sexier than what this is. Yes, yes. <laughs> you actually are in charge you are in governance mode and you are responsible for these people and yet you choose not to see um but so that that's what i i go in for i go in for the pay inequity and the promotional gaps and i if i can lift thousands and thousands of people by making those that visible that for me makes change and i feel good about that can i ask Steve, does the conversation around gender does it help or does it hinder the conversations around broader diversity, cultural and race and disability and so on? From my perspective, from my lived experience, the conversation on gender has halted us on all the other diversity attributes, uh, mainly because it's let's solve for this first. Right. Um, and that will never that job will never be done. <laughs> Gender, gender equality. Um, we are number fifty on the World Economic Forum, and slipping, and slipping. We've slipped from number forty-four to number fifty, uh, and we've never really been above that. To be honest, we've never really. We've always hovered around that number. So it be, it's because we don't look at gender intersectionality. We we yeah. we look at the the most that Australia can can um, pat itself on the back for is um, getting some sort of equity on boards and some sort of balance in leadership teams um and that's all we've done we've ne we've not looked past that uh we, we've actually helped women who are already on that trajectory we've actually not li lifted women who are seriously disadvantaged in systems all around our communities that actually are barred from all systems and then we we further marginalize them in in, in jobs and and that's why i say a, a job is a social determinant um so we really haven't looked there what are the levers there. what are the levers for change the levers for change i think is is in um evidence-based approaches really looking at um the data the data tells a story um and even if you look at gender data um we need to get into the qualitative spaces of of, of that data um, because um, that tells a story that is very different from the numbers. So you can look at, at, at the demographics and look and say, oh, we've got gender balance. But when you ask women who are there already, supposedly included, they are actually not. Uh, they are really facing discrimination, sexual misconduct. Um, they're facing, um, you know, misogyny at those points where they seemingly are included in the numbers so unfortunately even in those balanced teams women that we speak to are just not included or respected or valued um, and therefore they often do those sliding door moments where they spend 18 months two years and then they leave 
and they're on to another leadership team. And yes, seemingly it, it feels like this woman is advancing, but actually she's just swapping out one experience for a, hopefully a better one. But um, that revolving door is one part of the problem. The other, the other problem is actually that we, we don't actually have the courageous leadership in the space to really look at that lived experience mm. um, all throughout it. Uh, I mean, we're quite happy. We hear organizations quite happy to say, oh, we've got an 85% engagement score. Our people are happy. Uh, we ask the question, do you feel like you belong here? And most people say yes. But actually what we don't count is, you know, the 20%, the 15% who actually are really, really suffering. We, we, we leave them behind. Um, we, we don't have a, a reporting and complaint system in this country where people do have the courage to voice that they're not okay, to really receive that safely, but also to resolve that systemically. Mm. Um, you can see from Kate Jenkins' respected work reports and Liz Broderick's work as well, we, we don't tune in to that lived experience of exclusion, of disrespect, of disempowerment, um, of the lack of psychological safety. Um, so I feel like our conversation at the moment isn't game changing because we don't, we talk about inclusion and belonging. We don't talk about exclusion and discrimination and misconduct. Uh, and we ask people all the wrong questions in, in surveys that we ask. And I'm a qualitative researcher, so I, I, I like the qualitative. Um, and I also construct a lot of surveys. And we ask the exclusion question. Give me, give me two of those. Yeah, so where, where in the moments that matter do you feel excluded at work? And I'll ask through the recruitment, selection, onboarding, promotion and advancement. Yes. Where, where in those moments that matter do you feel excluded? And then why? Um, and it's, it's amazing, simple questions, because we're asking about exclusion, you know, um, and we ask about behaviors, we say, when have you not feel when based on your identity, have you not feel felt safe? And we say, you know, what are those examples? Are they jokes? Are they, you know, uh, feeling socially professionally isolated? And when we keep going down the list, people can tick many, many boxes. But the problem is that though we, we don't just see, you know, engagement surveys that ask those questions. We ask what I call a positively leading aggregated question. I feel included. I feel like I belong. Yeah. And most people go, oh, out of one to five, I'd say maybe three, maybe, maybe four. And people when they're in a positive, engaging with a positive leading statement, it already puts them in a positive mindset. We're actually forcing them to think of the moments that are positive mainly, rather than asking them, actually, even if it's 20% of the time, what is that moment? And that tells you a lot. Steve, having these conversations is like my own mini MBA at the time. And I know I, I could go on for such a long time. And in this series as well, um, Liz Broderick does join the conversation um, and has shared some amazing things with us. So for the audience, I invite if they get a, get a chance to see you and um, Liz, fascinating conversations. Can I ask from your perspective, the final question that I ask everybody is, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change brave feminine leadership means the courage to lead yourself first before you lead anyone else um, and i think there are so many leaders 
who have not done the personal work. And I can say from my own story that when I've done the personal work myself, I have become a better leader for others. Um, and then I feel people follow me out of genuineness and they follow me and they collaborate with me before I even ask. Um, so I get the followership because I feel like I've done the work to be genuine and authentic and clear in my leadership of what I'm asking. Um, and I feel that, that that is brave in itself to hold a mirror up to yourself and look at yourself really hard for everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, and to own it and to make different choices for yourself first, to lead better, to be a better human being is brave. Um, and I feel from a feminist perspective, I think we need to change that sort of narrative around feminine leadership. It's not just women leading other women. Mm. It's everyone thinking about gender equity as a human right. And I say equity very deliberately because we are nowhere near gender equality. It would be lovely to think we have all equal access to the same futures, but we do not. Uh, I know that from my own lived experience, but for so many other people of color and for so many other disadvantaged people, people with different sexual orientations, gender identities, different ability levels, First Nations, uh, men and women who still do not have a voice into our parliament, um, who still do not have reconciliation and action that they deserve. Uh, and this is our story to own. So I think that gender equality making is a utopia. We absolutely all need to see gender equity as a human right. And when we lean into that kind of leadership, we will make a change. But if we see it selectively, we don't lead ourselves. We're going to just be spinning our wheels on the same spot. And we're still going to be number 50 or 44 or whatever it is in the World Economic Forum. We cannot compete. And as a small country, we have agility. Mm. Um, we have talented people uh, in our midst and we should be braver than we are, uh, but we're not seeing that just yet, which is disappointing. So um, I applaud you on the work that you're doing because by bringing these voices out, hopefully you are influencing others to act. Um, so this, this is why I've said yes to you to, to share my story because I'm hoping that others listen and look at themselves and lead differently. You've, um, you've just got such a powerful voice in this space. So thank you so much for joining our conversation. It's just been such a privilege to, to meet with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.